It's Behind the Headlines on WLIWFM. This is our weekly opportunity to sit down with award-winning journalists from all over the East End to do a little bit of a deeper dive into the week's news. I'm Joe Shaw. I'm the executive editor of the Express News Group. We publish the Southampton Press, the East Hampton Press, the Sag Harbor Express, and the website 27east.com and also Express Magazine. Uh, My co-host is Bill Sutton. He's the managing editor of the Express News Group. Good morning, Bill. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, everybody. And good panel today. As always, we have Denise Civiletti, the editor of Riverhead Local. Hey, Denise. How are you doing? Good to have you, as always. And also Beth Young, the editor of the East End Beacon. Hey, Beth. Good to see you. Thanks for joining us. And we have Brian Cosgrove, who is the host of the Mighty Mighty Afternoon Ramble right here on WLIWFM. Hey, Brian. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks for for joining us this morning. So, you know, it's interesting to me that that we are already talking about uh, the political season. Uh, it's already sort of getting underway. At least the the starting gate is starting to get filled up, and uh, there's a lot of gaps in that starting gate. We're starting to see some some uh, positions that are going to open up, and we're going to see new officials elected. And um, Beth, you have uh, a story this week about Greenport. There's a lot going on over in Greenport, right? Yeah. Um, well, village elections are usually held in the springtime. Um, so Greenport, mm-hmm. Greenport is a village. Their election is uh, the uh, March 21st. And uh, their petitions to get on the ballot were due on Valentine's Day. And uh, there were there was quite a bunch of interest. Um, a total of nine people submitted uh, petitions because they wanted to get on the ballot, including two incumbents. Wow. And, um, and the village clerk decided to, um, she, she sent a letter to all nine candidates on the 14th saying, um, uh, your name and party shall appear on the ballot. Kindly note that the last day to file a certificate of declination is February 17th. What she failed to say in this letter was that, um, the village was requiring them to file a letter saying they would accept being on the ballot. So the incumbents filed this letter that they knew they had to send and none of the other candidates filed the letter because they weren't told it existed. Oh my. So they wow. were sent letters saying that um uh their their um it was like seven candidates, right? Yeah, they did not comply with the requirements uh in New York election law 6144 which is not really clear on this issue. Um, which required them to file a proper certificate of acceptance with the village. So the village board had their annual their their monthly meeting Tuesday uh, Thursday night, packed to the gills in the. Uh, so they were the removed room. from removed from they the were, ballot. They right? were removed from the ballot. Yeah. So people just got tons and tons of people got up and said, "This is insane. Why is this happening?" The village clerk wasn't there to uh, answer for what happened um, <laughs> <laughs> after. After more than an hour of this, they actually the village board voted to put the people's names back on the ballot and give them until Monday to submit their um, certificate of acceptance. Oh, wow. So supposedly they're back on the ballot, but uh, everyone is. I'm assuming that the the board can do that. It's not a a, a state law or. Well, uh, the village attorney had guidance from state election law saying that what they were doing was legal, but they didn't provide notice to the candidates. So it's kind of the, the, the candidates have their own attorney who said, you know, this letter that said your name is on the ballot and your deadline to submit the certificate of declination. Like it didn't say anything about the certificate of acceptance so that that their lawyer thinks should serve as their notice that they will be on the ballot. Oh, I so, see. So they, they either had to submit a, a note declining or accepting, and they didn't realize that they had to submit a, a, a note either. I understand now. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So this this original letter was really misleading. Yeah. Um, and really interesting. Um, intentionally or not, um, uh, I guess okay. we can I'm, I'm, that, I'm, but... I'm the candidates from, from both, from different parties? Well, they're all local parties, right? Um, so they're not. It wasn't um, just one party singled out. Well, so were all the incumbents in one party? Yeah. The the incumbents um, were um, were both. Um, they both knew that they had to submit this letter, and they submitted. So. Uh, yeah, it really? feels like. 
So it's got the incumbents in one party and the no, challengers are in some other party? Or I I don't know actually because the parties in village elections tend yeah, to be really very... they're kind of meaningless. But <laughs> yeah. this is I always an the, argument though. The hope that... and anchor party is one of the ones that's. <laughs> They, the we had the Whalers that, party or things like that. The system is the system is set up to benefit the incumbents, uh, you know. And and but you know, I, the flip side of that argument is if you're going to run for office, even if it's for a village office, you kind of need to know the rules. But uh, but this obviously the wrinkle here is the village with with that announce with the, the note that it sent around was sort of misleading about yeah. what was required. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think it's an open question whether that I mean the the new the New York Council of Mayors, I believe, has given the village guidance that they should be requiring this letter, but whether they should be informing people that they require the letter, nobody and being has clear. had to deal with that issue yet. Yeah. And being I, clear about how I, I wonder the the deadline for that letter is that set by state. I'm not I by by state law or, or by the village law. Right. And there, I think there's still a lot of open questions. I mean, they did pass a resolution on Thursday night requiring the letter um extending the deadline by the twenty seventh. Um uh and everyone said they would be there. It's Friday right now, Friday morning with their letter in hand. So hey, hey you got a pen? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's all as well that ends well, basically, right? I mean, it, at the moment, I mean, we're yeah. taping <laughs> Friday, and you know, tomorrow it could be a different story. I hope not. <laughs> that is really interesting. Okay. So yeah. beyond that, we 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 also had um, an announcement this week that uh, Bridget Fleming. The Suffolk County uh, legislator from the South Fork uh, is not going to seek re-election this year. This was a little bit of a surprise, kind of came out of nowhere, um, and it opens up a seat now. And and also, uh, Beth, you had mentioned that Al Krupski, who is another Suffolk County legislator, is being term limited out, right? And he's he's what what's his area that he represents? Yeah, I think he has another year and a half or two years, but but he. Um... But uh, Southfield Town Supervisor Scott Russell is not running again. And um, Al, Al Krupski is from Kutchug on the North Fork, um, a very good friend of Scott's. And he's always said in the past that he would never run against him. Um, so now that Scott isn't running again, um, uh, he announced last week that he's running. The The Democrats in Southfield haven't had their nominating commission yet. It's going to be on the 2nd of March. Um, but um, I see. So his seat is the up. candidate. Yeah. So it would be a safe um, seat if he doesn't win the South Hold election, then he would he would still be a legislator. Got no, it. no, he's not running for re-election. No, oh, he's not. Oh, he's not oh. running for re-election. Yeah, I see. Um, actually, uh, Denise has some information on the Republican candidate. I mean, his, his current term is up this year, so it's yeah. either or. Oh, OK. And, uh, yeah. But I mean, it's going to be interesting to see whether what South Hold Republicans do, because it's sort of like, oh, everybody loves Al. I mean, I was reading a story in um, the Suffolk Times, I think, about how, uh, you know, with comments from like the South Hill Republican leader, it almost sounded like an endorsement. I mean, it was like, you know. Yeah, they said he's the most conservative Democrat oh, we know. <laughs> Al has always gotten along with everybody, basically. And, uh, you know, um, so his, and okay, so, you know, Al, the Democratic uh, County. County legislator who uh, defeated um, Sean Walter in a special election in 2013 to succeed Ed Romaine as county legislator because Ed had gotten elected to Brookhaven Town Supervisor. Uh, so that's what happened. And somebody who sought the, the Republican nomination that year uh, to to run for county ledge in this special election um, didn't get it. Sean Walter got it, but the but then Al hired her as his legislative aide, Republican Catherine Stark, <laughs> mm. um, and uh, she has now been tapped to run for county ledge uh, in the first district. So she's going to be the Republican. She is, as of last night, the Republican nominee. We should also mention that Ed Romaine, Brookhaven Town Supervisor, is apparently the uh, county executive nominee from the Republican Party. So. Uh, so a lot of musical, a lot of musical chairs yeah. this year, right? Yeah. yeah. 
So we're yeah. going to see if um, maybe Jay Schneiderman is planning a move to Riverhead to get the Democratic nomination for supervisor here. Because, you know, he, he, he gave up the well, circuit. He's, yeah, he's done too. <laughs> but uh, because that's all apparently still up in the air. There have been no announcements of uh, the Democratic slate here in Riverhead. So. Um, so, Bill, Bill, what do we for for Bridget Fleming's seat? Do we have anybody who's stepped forward yet? To yeah, say that absolutely. It came out in the in the same announcement um, on on Thursday, and we had kind of a little birdie had, had had kind of clued us in earlier in the week. So, Ann Welker, who is a Southampton Town trustee, that's that's the board that oversees the uh, the bays and the waterways and 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 all that, and she was actually. Uh, the first woman ever elected to that board. Um, she... Which is the oldest elected board um, in the region, I believe, because they predate even the, the Southampton Town Board. board yeah. uh, the Southampton Town trustees were, were the first the first elected board. So. Right. So so when when the Democrats had announced their Southampton Town uh, candidates uh, last week, she was conspicuously absent as uh, running for re-election for town trustee. So we kind of knew something was up there. But she has um, she stepped forward and and she's going to run for Bridget's seat. And Bridget has already given her the endorsement. They did a kind of a a combined dual uh, announcement uh, on Thursday. Uh, Fleming says she's um, you know she had she had served as a as a Manhattan assistant district attorney. She was also a Southampton town board member, and she's been um, she's held elected. She was um, county uh, county legislator. Obviously, she's uh, served an elected office for 14 years and said it's time to explore options um, in the private sector. Um, she's an attorney, so it, it's, um, you know, we, we kind of watch to see to see what kind of what, what that takes. I would imagine with all her land use experience as a as a legislator and a and a town board member that she might um, work with a with a firm doing it. land land use issues, but we'll we'll see what that turns into. She's also, you know, again, she was a a DA, so she's got criminal experience too. It's worth pointing out too that she was the Democratic candidate for the congressional seat and twice. and lost it and 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 twice. And and I think that probably has to. I, I think if I you know if I were were Bridget Fleming, I probably would be ready to start thinking about. Um, getting a getting a position that was a little more solid because she she you know she made two very good runs in those congressional races and didn't you know came came up short both times and I think that's just sort of the fickle nature of of politics on the East End um, because she's been a been a pretty good county legislator Denise can you can you put into some context the county legislator legislature seats and how they sort of fit into the local political scene is that sort of a stepping stone, uh, or is it a destination position? What what is a, a county legislature seat locally? Well, I mean, they obviously they are the legislative body for the county of Suffolk for the, for the government, and it's kind of set up. You know, the, we, the county executive is the executive, and as the administration, the legislature is responsible for you know, adopting the laws that govern the county and, you know, kind of providing check and balance kind of thing for, you know, county government. Um, uh, you know, when when Supervisor Walter ran for county legislature, part of his platform was that it should be abolished. <laughs> he wanted to return. <laughs> he wanted to return back to the, uh, the old Board of Supervisors form of government, um, which the supervisors of each town formed the legislative body essentially of the for the county up until I think it was 1970 the, the county legislature was was formed um and um that kind of gave it equaled it out a little bit for the east end because we have two county legislators on the east end right and you know that's a body of 18 people so we you know here on the east end you know um are not necessarily get their way all the time right um and uh like for instance you know the county county government packed up and went to hop on <laughs> uh yeah. as as a result of that sort of thing i think and um anyway um i you know is it a stepping stone it's i don't know that it's really pr provides that much more visibility for a politician looking well, maybe, to maybe up, a little so maybe yeah. maybe a little wider geographically um, yeah. You know, I mean, if you're 
if you're a legislator and sometimes that covers a couple of different towns or, or a larger area, maybe you get a little better name recognition, but it's not like um, it's not like they're doing hot button issues. Although Bridget, you know, she she kind of helped uh, work to reform the, you know, the the bus system in, in the county. And, and I think got some some notable recognition, you know, from that. But not, not, not just her. I mean, what are the legislators do I, I mean there's not a big opportunity for them to to grandstand i, I don't think and and have that countywide name recognition right it's a it's a lot of nuts and bolts but by this but by the same token the county legislature in suffolk has kind of made a name for itself in terms of being um trailblazing in a lot of ways i mean you know um and i think that that those things would not necessarily have happened if we had a board of supervisors, you know, which is also less representative of of people, a board of supervisors. So, you know, people, the uh, legislators elected by districts, you know, stand like uh, the board of supervisors mode of government was actually thrown out by courts and, for, you know, failure to represent minorities and things, you know, yeah, minority I groups as well. Environmentally yeah. is a really big place they've stood yeah. out. They really um, have. I mean, we were yes. the first county to ban DDT yeah. uh, way back in the day. It, it might be telling, though, that Al Krupski is moving from the legislature seat back to a town level. Jay Schneiderman has done that as well. Right. Um, he, he held the seat and, and ran for town supervisor. Um, it's not necessarily a progressive seat where you serve at the town level, go to the county legislature, and then Right. Make the leap. I don't know that anybody's successfully done that. Um, well, unless unless you unless you jump to county executive, which which has a little more prominence, I think, and then maybe you can run for, you know, state state office or you know. I mean, I, I think that um, I, I can't. I'm not coming up with uh, with names, but I think people have gone from county legislature to state um, to mm. state assembly. Um, I it don't, happens. I think that did did Thiel do that? No, Thiel didn't do that. Um, I don't know if Engelbright <laughs> did that. Yeah, I think Thiel went from town to to town to yeah, yeah. state. Yeah, yeah. But I I think that like I think that people I can't remember who it was, but I think there's some kind of like West End legislator who was a legislator when I was on the town board, then ended up in the assembly. But not historically, the assembly districts were similar to the yeah. legislative districts out here. But since now Theo is the North Fork's assemblyman, yeah. that's not the case anymore. So, but Theo's yeah. not going to be the North Fork assemblyman. Yeah, anymore. exactly. <laughs> it keeps changing. <laughs> <It's around laughs> yeah. so, the boundaries we should, we should mention the county executive race, which is going to have two. Uh, Steve Ballone is term limited out this time, and and. Uh, so that's going to be a fairly big race, and and we've got the two candidates there, right, Denise? Ed, uh, Ed Romaine, the Republican, and um, who's you know extremely well known, I think, and well regarded um, by people of you know various parties, <laughs> and um, David Cologne. David Cologne, who's who has run. We, we're familiar with him from from yeah. some past runs, and he's also a, a good can. I think it's going to be a good race. I, I think a that's uh, two two really yeah. good candidates. I absolutely agree. So Cologne's um, got a lot of money, but Cologne's got a lot of money. Romaine, though, has, I mean, excellent reputation and um, and good name recognition. And he's just been around for for forever. Um, has always been really big on constituent service. He's very likable people. You know, it's kind of like Al Krupski, like people know him and like him. And, and, and to more and, people um, know somebody that the less they like, you know. and, and really champions the environment. I mean, he's a, he for a Republican, he's a he's a great environmentalist. I didn't yeah. mean to qualify it that way, but you, <laughs> <know>. <laughs> you but, have to be both out here. Yeah, I guess. I mean, the county and, legislature, I feel, has done a lot of important things in Suffolk County. I mean, farmland preservation. That's another thing that happened with, in Suffolk that it was like a trailblazing thing. Um and so, I'll end the, the conversation about yeah. elections by pointing out that in Southampton and East Hampton towns, we will have four women candidates for town supervisor. And I believe that's the first time that's ever been the case. Uh, that's great stuff. I mean, you know, it took a long time for uh, the two towns down here to to put women in leadership positions uh, at town hall. And now uh, 
that's going to be, you know, the top of the ticket is all women. And I think that's a, a real step forward and really good candidates, by the way, yeah. I, I think across the board, too. Yeah. There, there have not been a whole lot of um, women in office here in Riverhead, really. And um, I mean, we had two uh, female supervisors in a row. Um, we'll see what happens this time around. The Democratic slate's still in flux, apparently. They haven't made any announcements, but um, the Republicans nominated their slate on Monday. Um, and, uh, you know, Yvette Aguiar stepped aside and Tim Hubbard is now their candidate for supervisor. He's got two female running mates for council. Um, and uh, a former councilman is running for town clerk because the Riverhead town clerk is retiring this year. So um, a lot of changes happening here as well. Going to be a very active political season this yeah, year. And, and Southampton, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, the candidates, Joe, and Southampton, we had the announcement this week that West Hampton Beach Village Mayor Maria Moore um, is going to be the Democratic candidate for, for town board. Um, which is an interesting choice coming from from the town supervisor. Town supervisor, well, I, yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah. Um, town yeah. supervisor, and um, she, she's going to be a strong candidate. I think she she got a lot done in in the village. Um, you know, we just hailed her recently in a in a an express sessions uh, event for the for the Main Street revitalization project and bringing in the new uh, sewers to West Hampton Beach, and she has built a consensus on on the village board. Um, and then she's running against a very strong candidate, Cindy McNamara, who's a town board member right now um, on the Republican ticket is, um, you know, very, very strong in, in the community. She, she's got a local business in Hampton Bays, which is, um, you know, the largest hamlet in, in the town and usually accounts for a, a good portion of of voters. And um, she kind of she kind of came up as, as kind of the anti, you know, anti-establishment, you know, before she was elected. And she's, you know, um, on the board, she's been working to, you know, to make sure that um, that her constituents are are, in, are well represented, her constituents in Hampton Bays and in the business community. So that's it's going to be a really, I think, a tight race. And and interesting one to watch. Brian, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I wanted to ask you guys, as you're talking about this stuff, which I find fascinating, the local politics out here. Let me see if I can be articulate with this. Since the pandemic, and let's say since it was the surge in uh, people supposedly coming out here year round, and people uh, with, with more money supposedly making this a more permanent address, have you seen, and of course, places like Greenport surging in the past couple of five years and other places as well that we see just like off the charts with popularity and um, prestige and, and not just Greenport, just the East End in general. Have you guys noticed an influx of money and candidates that have been either someone who is anonymous or do you see there's candidates that come out of nowhere that are have a nice bankroll behind them? Or is that you know, it's the last few couple? I, mean, I would Denise, say you know, I would say Yvette Aguiar fits yeah. that uh, description. I mean, first time candidate. Um, I mean, she had a home here and stuff. I wouldn't say she came out of nowhere exactly, but pretty close to it. I mean, you know, I, I'm around this stuff all the time. I had never seen or heard, really heard of her before. Um, but uh, she became like one of the all time. Uh, most prolific fundraisers, um, yeah, and you know, hmm. in, to come in and she put a chunk of her own uh, money into it to begin with. So, I mean, that's you know the kind of thing. And as far as I'm concerned, and probably of all the towns, the least likely place for something like that to happen yeah. <laughs> would be Riverhead. Yeah. Oh, I, and on the South Shore, I, I, it, it predates the the pandemic, but you saw both. Um, Southampton Village and East Hampton Village in, in elections over the past, um, you know, four, six, eight years, um, spending a, 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 an unbelievable amount of money on on village village elections. And, yeah, and I, I was going to say, I think the impact has been at the village level yeah. more than the town level. Um, 
down here. We've seen a lot of spending in, in village elections that that we just hadn't seen in the past. And but it's interesting. And those are pretty high, pretty high end villages. I mean, you know, pro- property values are pretty high. So so you're going to see maybe an influx, you know, like Brian suggested. But it's just, um, you know, yeah. the residents of that village maybe have a little more disposable income to put into the campaigns. Yeah, I. I because you guys are while you're talking, it's it's a great conversation because I'm thinking, you know, people are different. Um, they're motivated by different means. And Joe, you a little couple minutes ago, you mentioned, well, you think this is a stepping stone. How much of these offices do you think they have bigger aspirations? And I think that's, you know, and and I don't necessarily money doesn't have. And if someone's just new out here, they're you know, they're allowed. I mean, they pay their taxes. They come out here. doesn't matter if you're 10 generations or you're just you just moved out here. Everybody, you know, has got the same chance. Obviously, if you got more money, you probably got a better chance. But the idea of what motivates folks, do they truly are there? Is their heart into doing something good or is it just, you know, I want to get here and then I want to get there and then I want to get, you know, to Congress. I want to get to Senate, like you said. So, it's I think it's a mixed bag, Brian. Yeah. I think I think some people are just do-gooders and really want to do good. Right. So they start out that way, and I think other people have, um, you know, higher higher uh, aspir- right. higher, uh, have other aspirations. <laughs> yeah. I just hope um, I can. When I go in, I like to hope I can read, you know, what my what I want to put my vote, the person I want to put my vote behind. Yeah. You know, I don't necessarily want somebody who wants to use it as a stepping stone. Yeah, I, I haven't really seen people who are looking at it as a stepping stone. Yeah, out here. I think um, that's true. I, I I don't think I think I can think of one or two names that might fit that bill, but but not, not glaringly yeah. so. Yeah, I, you I, know, I there's more, another. I think, more, I think more you see people who run for for local office on a town board or or village board or whatever, and and they're there for a while and they do some good. And and then maybe you know maybe they think well if I ran for for this higher level board maybe I can yeah. do more good and, and I think we <laughs> see that and we've certainly seen people who have who oh yeah have, who have jumped you know. well I think it was I'm sorry go ahead go ahead um, well the thing with state state and federal offices is a lot of the constituents are further up west so yeah having a having population. a base on the east end isn't necessarily helping you population wise. Um, I, I will I was say, that. say too that I think it's important. I'm sorry to, to acknowledge um, how hard it is to run today. I mean, not only does it require more money, ironically, uh, because there's so many free ways to kind of promote yourself with social media, but it's a double-edged sword because it's brutal. You know, I mean, years ago, people ran for office; they were not, you know, tarred and feathered on Facebook. You know, every word they uttered. You know. <laughs> Once they were right now, really. And I, I think that dissuades a lot of people from even considering it. Why would you subject yourself to that? You know, I think you're absolutely um, right. Yeah. And that's yeah. a shame. But and it also costs costs more money. People are doing more television advertising, for example, which is quite costly. Um, right. So. Brian, yeah, I, Brian, to your original point, um, maybe not as far as elected office, but I think that during the pandemic and immediately you know following the initial stages when when there was that influx of people i think we saw a lot more people showing up to speak during public hearings a lot more people writing letters to the editor and maybe these were people who um had 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 their addresses primarily in in new york and were very active in new york politics um right. you know in, in neighborhoods and you know in council you know meetings and all that 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 brought that activism with them out east and and said well now that i'm out here i'm taking a look around and um i you know i want to be vocal about this issue or that issue environmental stuff that type of thing um, so and i was actually gonna gonna make that point bill that that uh brian to your to your point about the influx of people during the pandemic, what I think is going to be interesting to watch now is whether it turns out to be tidal, that it flowed in really heavily during the pandemic. But I think a lot of those people have returned to the city yeah. now and they mm. continue to own property here, but they are not here full time in the way that they were during the pandemic. I think th- th- there was an open question about whether that would stick for a long period of time. And uh, I, it depends on who you talk to, but I think a lot of the folks, especially 
um, business owners have said to me that most of those people are gone again now in the off season. Now, I, I think we still have a very healthy off season population here right now. And there are, there are some folks who would say the opposite, that if you go out into public right now, we had an event uh, just last week with some real estate folks, and they talked about the fact that you you know there are restaurants here now that are full all the time. That, that hmm. it, you know it's not just a summer thing. So that we may still have some some impact of that influx of people from the pandemic. But I wonder how much of it is going to stick long. I, I think that was kind of trending too before the before the pandemic. I mean, it, what you saw the the season lasting further into the fall and starting earlier. In, yeah. in in the spring um I, I mean it wasn't it's not like the old tumble tumbleweed tuesday days where the day after after labor yeah. day you could go sit down in the middle of main street it hasn't been like that in a number of years and i think that's a um you know it, it just it it speaks to you know to you know the different towns and villages offering you know offering more during you know during those um you know stretching the seasons out and the and the business owners realizing that there's still money to be made i i think it's going to be interesting to see and whether there's a, a permanent impact on the voter rolls out here because mm -hmm. you know even if people were to hear full-time but now they retain their part-time residence and live in the city and come out they can still vote out here um yeah. and so it's going to be interesting to see if there. I don't know if you looked at this at all, but whether you know there's a bump in voter enrollment and more participation in um, elections. Um, uh, in, in voting in South Old Town, that has definitely changed changed town politics uh, enormously because a lot of registered Democrats came out here during the pandemic and are registered out here, and it's the first time that South Hold actually now has a major has more uh, more registered Democrats than Republicans. So. Um, but I think that, I think that we saw that stayed. in Southampton as well. Yeah. I think yeah. the 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 Southampton town Democratic parties gained more uh, registered voters than than the others. Although the big uh, the big block of votes is still the uh, independents, no affiliations. I mean, they're almost yeah. almost an equal. So, well, you know, to, not to not to beat this to death, but just I just wanted to mention a friend of mine works in retail in Amagansett. I went out there, I said hello to him, and it's dropped off quite a bit during the week. I mean, I've been on Main Street at five o'clock out there, and it's like I'm the only car parked out there. And I've heard, um, you know, without trying to get too read into people's minds, is that the idea of coming out here is good. And then folks from the city come out here for a couple of months, and then they get bored and they miss the city, <laughs> and the active life. I mean, it's nice to live out in the country. But if you're a city person, like you were referring to before, they're going back. I think a lot more folks are mm -hmm. back than we anticipated a lot quicker. And I think the nature of the pandemic, uh, you know, there's you now things are back open again. And, and so people, people can go back to the city and go back to are, their normal life. People are traveling to people yeah. are going, going to go. Europe and people are, you know. All of which I think feeds going into to, that. Yeah, absolutely. Going to Florida, I think. I think during the pandemic, people were were sticking here that that would normally snowbird to, to Florida and back, and yeah. now people are, are are down there. It's a good time to remind people that this is behind the headlines on WLIWFM. I'm Joe Shaw. My co-host is Bill Sutton. We're with the Express News Group. Our panelists today are Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local. Beth Young of the East End Beacon and Brian Cosgrove from right here at WLIWFM. So I did want to talk briefly about um, something that came up this week. We had an article, uh, Bill, the uh, local legislators had their legislative uh, environmental roundtable that they, they've held every year. This, was, this has been a tradition that uh, Fred Thiel and uh, Ken Laval did for, for years and now Anthony Palumbo is is also involved in I, I believe they've got some other folks involved. Jody, in Jody Giglio too. Jody Jody Giglio was there as well, yeah. Um, and it brought together a lot of officials um, from all over the East End to talk about it. And and one thing that struck me about the article that that Kitty Merrill did for us was one of the conversations that came up during this was Kathy Hochul's proposal 
to try to override local zoning in some instances to encourage more affordable housing and, and to do so by looking at density and, and increasing density in some areas and, and having the state actually be able to come in and override local uh, zoning rules to do that. Across the board, environmentalists, politicians, every, uh, you know, Republican, Democrat, at everybody who spoke on the subject at this environmental roundtable hated that idea mm. on the East End in particular and just said it's a bad strategy for the East End. I'm really intrigued by that reaction in the sense of I, I think a lot of folks have had bad reactions to, to the governor's proposal, but there are some things that make the East End sort of uniquely unsuited for that kind of thing, I think. Yeah, I propose. I propose absolutely. I'll be the fastest mouth on the panel again. I, I, was trying <laughs> I mean, like, I'm not surprised at all that local officials uh, have to you know, get their backs up when a state, you know, the state government comes in and wants to do zoning, you know, essentially, because that has been a strictly local, you know, domain. Um, but, you know, as I said before, you know, we were talking. The, you know, sometimes you need someone with a bigger hammer to kind of come in and force change that locals are resistant um, to allow. And when it comes to affordable housing, we talk about this week after week after week, how uh, there's always a lot of talk, but not a lot of movement and action on providing affordable housing are always stumbling blocks because, you know, quite frankly, affordable housing sounds good to people like maybe like me and Beth who, you know, your kids are adults now and you want them to be able to find a place to live. But for a lot of like second homeowners and stuff like, you know, they're not too interested in having an affordable housing complex in their neighborhood or even affordable homes in the subdivision that they buy into, I think. So, you know, they have a different perspective on it. Um, I think one of the things and I was actually, you know, this whole thing, I I got mixed up in my head with the, the transportation oriented development thing that was part mm -hmm. of the and I yeah, was the, like, governor, well, the governor wants to see more intense development around things like train stations. Train stations, yeah. And so I kind of like backburnered that in my head, so to speak, to the extent. <laughs> but because Riverhead has already adopted this trans TOD, transportation-oriented development district for high density, well, as it goes out here, high density development around the Riverhead train station. Uh, I guess in the hope that eventually we get trains coming, but um <laughs> But there are there are trains, but not many. But but like, you know, so it kind of like I didn't really look, read it very closely. I was, you know, but what I was surprised to learn was that um, if the town doesn't if towns don't move on these kind of affordable housing initiatives over a, a, like a one percent increase per year or something like that over three years, I, three, I'm not three percent, three, three percent over, three. But over three years. Right. So it's one, yeah. one, one. But if the towns don't do that, OK. The state can fast track it and pretty much bypass um, the State Environmental Quality Review Act, yeah. you know, because that's, you know, I don't know, used by it's perceived to be used by people to stop things. And, and, you know, it's like that really drove the environmental community crazy. Because nobody for good knows. reason, I think. Yeah. I mean, yeah, nobody it, wants to see that happen. Secret exists for a reason. And, Absolutely. And, you know, Brian, also at the at, at the meeting. And um, that you were talking about, Joe, Fred, Fred Thiel used as an example, um, Amagansett train station. And he said that under the governor's proposal, land within a half mile of the train station would have to have a density of 15 units per acre, which is which is huge. Um, yeah. And and as you said, if the town doesn't do it, the state would make the town do it. Um, and the density comes with no requirement that it be affordable at all. So, mm -hmm. so you've got this huge increased okay. density around the train station. <laughs> and, and he worries that without local control, that could turn into luxury housing. I mean, right. you know, all these people coming out, you know, from the city to, to Amagansett and you've got this, you know, this, this um, shiny new, um, you know, $4 million, $3 million condo 
you know, near the train station, how does that help affordable housing? And right. and how does that hurt the environment? You know, I mean, that's just incredible. Yeah. I mean, the places where this makes sense, it's already being done. Yeah. Yeah. And even here, yeah. there are movements in that direction. But Brian, I wanted yeah. to ask you, you and I have been talking about affordable housing for, for years and years. And there's an undercurrent to, to what Governor Hochul is proposing. And that is at the at the national level, even if you take a global view of this, there is a there is a feeling out there that local zoning has gotten more restrictive over the years and that that has a prejudicial quality to it, that it that it's created communities where people are being excluded and they're being excluded for economic reasons, but they're also being excluded by the zoning that's been created locally, that that a local community starts to adopt zoning that says you have to build on bigger and bigger lots. And these are single family houses and we're not going to allow apartment buildings, period. And that creates the kind of situation we have on the South Fork right now where we don't have affordable housing for people. Right. I mean, the governor's proposal is meant to sort of push a community very much like ours into reconsidering whether or not we need to change our zoning to to make some realistic uh, adaptions to to create some affordable housing. Yeah. Can I just say something? Zoning's sure. always been used that for that purpose. Like that mm-hmm. is one of the main reasons for zoning. <laughs> Honestly, it's exclusionary. You know, although on the on the east end, I think it can be argued it's a little different because I think it's also about creating valuable properties for people who live in the city and they want some expanse. But but Brian, well, I, but, I but isn't that, isn't that at the exclusion of everybody? It else? ends up being I, exclusionary. I, 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 I would argue that on the South Fork, though, some of that zoning was used um, as an environmental um you know element to to kind of you know help protect water at least it was was sold that way i mean i think a lot of the definitely when, part they, of when they went to five acre yeah. zoning on on a lot of lots it, it was it was for environmental reasons but but i agree but i think joe i think your your explanation of the governor's proposal is i i, I think her her idea is just a little more s- simplistic i think she's 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 saying there's not enough housing let's just create more housing let's just make a bigger pot and, and more houses um which 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 yeah you create more houses there's more housing you know hopefully there's, there's more opportunities but but you know it's lost that out here is a different story when when you have five million dollar houses and three million dollar houses and you create more of those it, it doesn't create any affordable housing yeah. at all and and actually, we, all, we all interrupted brian Brian, the point being that I think Governor Hochul's proposal goes to that reality that we've been talking about, that there just isn't a lot of affordable housing. And some of that is just because there isn't a lot of housing. Yeah, absolutely. And then then now we're back to, you know, talking about local politics and politicians because they're put in a very tough place because, like Denise said, not in my backyard. Right. People don't want it in their backyard, but they want to also be, you know, altruistic at the same time. But they don't want to lose the equity on their property. Uh, And so it and especially out here now, since the pandemic, you know, I mean, the the equity has gone up in the last five years as much as it's gone in the previous 20, I think. Anyway, in the few places that I've had. And I think, you know, and not to I mean, you, you look at a place like Sag Harbor where the place has just all of a sudden gone off the charts as the place to be. And I don't mean it in a good or bad or in a different way. It's gotten very popular. And I think the local politicians were just beside themselves with like what to do. And they had to say, wait a minute, we got to put the brakes on, especially with this waterfront construction and all these things. And then to have Governor Hochul to come out and not that I would imagine the governor thinks it's a black and white issue, but this is an extremely unique place, as you guys know. Yeah, this is a you know being in being out here when I now it's twenty five years from or whatever in radio. I've seen people make assumptions from New York City and everything about this market. This market is very unique. It's not what you think it might be. Whether you assume it's the Hamptons or a lot of money, or it's much different once you stay here for a while. 
It's not what you think it is. You need to be around it for a long time. As you guys well know, there's a lot of assumptions about this place that just don't work. And, you know, with affordable housing and local politics, whoa, especially now with the equity in real estate that people are expecting or they think it is, you know, I mean, it's 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 a tough nut, don't you think? Yeah. I do. And 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 Beth, I think Bill's point that a lot of the zoning out here that is more restrictive was in large degree because of environmental reasons. If the state comes in and undoes some of that, there's that's really going to be a, a, a kick in the teeth locally, right? Yeah, well, I, I think it's worth noting that l- last year, um, when Kathy Hochul suggested uh, the uh, affordable dwelling units, make, making it easier for everybody to have an affordable dwelling unit, it was actually at the re- environmental roundtable that a lot of these same people got together and said, we do not want this in the state's plans. We're going to fight it. And she had withdrawn that proposal by by the next week, I believe. So this is sort of it seems like it's going in the same direction. Yeah, it's, it's, it's uh, really but I, interesting. But environmental concerns aside, and, yeah. I mean, there's there's got there's got to be a balance, obviously. But there's got to be the creation of of affordable housing, and and that throws all that previous zoning off. And I I personally love the idea of accessory units on a on a on a five acre parcel. I mean, two or three, and you know, while while you're at it, and you know, and and all that. And I I think in in certain areas maybe you can eliminate the. Uh, we've had this discussion a million times, but eliminate the the single family zoning um on on in a lot of areas to to promote those accessory units or turning um you know a huge old single family home on five acres into five apartments um right. you know maybe and and three of them are affordable or you know or or whatever and two of them are a little bigger I mean, that that type of thing but yeah. doing that there's going to be an impact on on the environment and and on water quality thank god we've got all that cpf money to put into water quality measures well and that's a, there was another water quality uh proposal that that's uh in Suffolk County and i believe it has to do with the state budget can Someone tell us tell us about that a little bit. Uh, I forget who I was. was I, was I was talking to one of you about that. I can't remember. Yeah, it was Yeah, I mean, what, it was just was an, eight, an eighth of a cent sales tax. I explain this to me because I, I I'm actually not familiar with this. So the governor, the governor, the county, the county's been pushing for this. Fred Thiel has actually in the past introduced a couple of bills that didn't go anywhere, including one, I think, that was in the budget, the governor's budget briefly last year, but got pulled. Um, In a nutshell, uh, the governor's budget is uh, has a provision in it that would create a countywide wastewater management district that would allow Suffolk County to consolidate consolidate its existing uh, sewer districts um, and would include in this wastewater management district every property that's in an unsewered area of in the county of Suffolk. It would not include existing town and village sewer districts, at least not at first. Um, but it, it and the bill would give this district the uh, authority to uh, collect sewer rents and ad valorem taxes. Um, and um, the county wasn't looking for that. They were looking for this quarter, uh, I'm sorry, eighth penny um, Tax sales tax increase that would put be put into this water quality fund that they would use to help. Um, it would be somehow I'm not sure, but segregated to various zones so that it wouldn't all be paying for improvements to West End sewer districts. There's a prohibition against um, creating new sewer districts. Okay, so that's always a concern among people out here because that's a growth inducing thing when there's a mm. sewer district and you got you can hook up this all right when you can hook up the sewers you know you can get higher density and and that people worry about that this all comes back to the same stuff over and over again mm-hmm. but, um, but um it it would oh, this fund would also go to um underwrite the cost of the innovative alternative nitrogen reducing septic systems that the county has really been pushing and it's all this is pursuant to a plan that the county put out in 
2020 um, to to do just that, to try to get everybody as or as many people as possible um, who have traditional septic systems that don't remove nitrogen to uh, put in these systems to remove nitrogen because nitrogen is, according to the county executive, uh, public water enemy number one, right? I mean, it's it pollutes the groundwater, it pollutes our surface water, it is a big contributor to all kinds of fish and shellfish die-offs and population declines and needs to be dealt with. Um, and so this is one way to generate revenue for that purpose. Um, so uh, Assemblyman Thiel told me he was working on revising um, a, a making a proposal to revise what's in the governor's executive budget to include this uh, quarter, uh, ah, I keep saying eight penny uh, uh, sales tax increase. And uh, if it all goes through, it would be, there'd have to be a local law adopted by the county legislature and it would be subject to a mandatory referendum. They're also packaging it with, and I think this is clever and smart on their part, but they're packaging it together with an extension of the uh, drinking water protection program out to 2060. It currently expires in 2030, I think. Um, mm -hmm. And so that would all be on the ballot in the same in the same measure, which I think would help it get get adopted and approved by the voters. Yeah, water quality is very very popular right now. So, uh, that's that's, that's it in a nutshell. Easy to get support for it. Something to keep an eye on. So we're we're just about out of time, and I did want to take a moment. I think we talked about this beforehand that we really wanted to 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 take a moment to remember uh, one of our colleagues down in Florida, um, Dylan Lyons, who uh, was a journalist, a TV journalist, who was shot and killed uh, while he was doing his job, and his photographer Jesse Walden was shot and injured, and also a nine-year-old girl was shot and killed uh, and her mom was was injured in a shooting in Florida. It's really a stark reminder, I think, for all of us that, that journalists are under fire and it doesn't just happen in other countries. This, this country, it's a dangerous job to do what we do. And we were talking about it before we came on the air and I mentioned that the Capitol Gazette shooting um, a couple of years back down around, down in Maryland really hit home for me because it was a small operation that um, it, it just felt like it was it, it, it was something that can happen and it clearly did happen there. And um, it's just it's just a moment to, to, to step back and say uh, honor all of our colleagues who are, who are under fire and, and in danger out there, right guys? Absolutely. People you know so often, can just be in the wrong place at the wrong time too, which I think is what happened to these folks. I don't think they were necessarily targeted as journalists, although that does happen as well. Um, There's an so. irony that it happened while they were covering a story on gun violence uh, that they became victims of gun violence. But yeah, well, it's that, also very, that very shooter who killed someone else earlier in the day and then returned and did these shootings. Yeah. Our thoughts go out to the families and, uh, you know, it's it's a scary thing. And I, I think it's a reminder that that uh, journalism is important and it can be dangerous. Uh, and there's a lot of really courageous people out there doing it. So uh, just wanted to take a moment to, to say that. But we are now officially out of time. So I want to thank our panelists, Denise Civiletti of Riverhead Local, Beth Young of the East End Beacon and Brian Cosgrove from right here at WLIWFM. Thank you, guys. Yep. And Thank you, as always, to my co-host, Bill Sutton. Thanks, Bill, and we'll see you back here next week.